Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And we're here today to talk about an aspect of the US healthcare sector that has always puzzled uh, patients uh, and uh, often economists. Why is it that in uh, the United States healthcare, in the United States economy, we have all sorts of conveniences brought to us by information technologies in every sector of that economy, it appears, except for healthcare? And why is it that the efforts underway to try to bring those conveniences to healthcare so, so often go awry? To help us uh, uh, examine these questions, we are going to be learning about a new book that has been released on the topic titled Big Brother in the Exam Room. Its author is Twyla Braze, who is the president and co-founder of the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, a patient-centered national organization based in St. Paul, Minnesota. She is the author of Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Tr Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. In, uh, prior to that, in August 2009, Modern Healthcare named Twyla one of the 100 most powerful people in healthcare. Uh, here to comment on Twyla's book, we've got me, but also even more important, we have Dr. Edward Lee. Dr. Lee uh, uh, comes to us from Kaiser Permanente, where he is the Executive Vice President of Information Technology on the Permanente Federation's National Permanente Leadership Team and the Federation's Chief Information Officer uh, with oversight over the Permanente Medical Group's information technology efforts. So he's one of the pioneers in the uh, effort to bring these sorts of conveniences to healthcare. And he will be commenting uh, on uh, Big Brother in the exam room immediately after Twyla's presentation. Uh, after that, I'll be offering a few thoughts. And then we will turn it over to you, the audience, to ask questions. If you'd like to ask questions, uh, via, if you're watching online, would uh, like to ask questions through Twitter, you can use the hashtag CatoHealth. Uh, uh, and with that, I'll invite Twyla up here. And we'll get going. And if we could take this slide down, that would be great. Thanks. Well, thank you. And thank you, Michael, for inviting me. Is this clear enough? You can hear? I can hear. OK. So I appreciate this opportunity to speak about my book. Uh, Citizens Council for Health Freedom is both patient-centered and privacy-focused. Uh, and we are a national organization located in the state of Minnesota, which is the mecca for medicine and medical care. I wrote Big Brother in the exam room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records, because the American people have no idea what the electronic health record is. They have no idea what it's doing to their care, and they have no idea how it's being used to violate the confidentiality of their private medical information. The, the medical record's main purpose, according to Dr. Lawrence Huntoon, is to provide a physician or other person taking care of the patient with information about what's going on with the patient. It allows a physician to track the patient's diagnoses, treatment, and progress from one encounter to the next. But the purpose of the electronic health record, or the EHR, which is how I'll refer to it often, is quite different. Its purpose is data collection and data reporting for outside control of medical decisions or so-called quality measurement. In fact, the EHR was not designed for patient care. It does not follow the flow of patient care 
and too often it is not safe for patient care. Furthermore, it, does not, it did not emerge organically on its own. Doctors and hospitals have been forced to buy, use, and update it or be penalized. The EHR was mandated by Congress in 2009 as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act just four weeks after President Obama's inauguration. The law provided more than $30 billion in subsidies to set up these computerized systems with a deadline of January 1st, 2014. But as I'll describe in a moment, these funds don't cover even half of the costs. The Health Information Technology section of the Recovery Act, which includes the EHR mandate, has been called the foundation for healthcare reform. And indeed, one year after the mandate became law, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, also became law. Under the mandate, doctors and hospitals must use a government-certified, government-designed, government-approved electronic health record, and they must use it meaningfully. If they don't, they'll be penalized with reduced payments from Medicare. I call this EHR the government EHR. There were private EHRs before the mandate, and those EHRs did what the doctor needed them to do, which was to care for their patients. But the government EHR does what the government wants it to do. Dr. Wel Dr. Ralph Grams, a physician and informatics professor, looked at the 23 criteria that uh, providers must follow to receive a federal subsidy for their EHR system from that $30 billion. In an article titled, The Obama EHR Experiment, Grams writes that only one criteria had anything to do with clinical treatment. The rest, he says, feed on the government, I'm sorry, the rest, he says, feed the government patient data that is needed for cost controls and physician monitoring. Thus, the EHR is filled with structured data elements rather than a simple documentation of the patient's story that quickly summarizes the symptoms, the diagnosis, and the treatment plan. Instead, there are a multitude of fields to enter patient data. There are pull-down menus, checkboxes, and, a, and a various screens to traverse. There's also a lot of useless data. Dr. John Prinskys at the Illinois Pain Institute says this. The EHR is pages and pages of mind-numbing text where important labs and information can be lost. He said doctors frequently can't find what's relevant through the reams of text and clutter. And this, of course, is not safe for patients. The reason for this new way of documentation is clear. As Dr. Graham's notes, quote, the majority of the criteria for federal subsidy payments deal with billing, rather deal with billing data transfer, and data mining capabilities. The real goal of the EHR project, he says, is not to control costs or enhance patient care. It's data mining, the control of the physician population, and the ultimate rationing and control of patient services. Grams calls this EHR an experiment on American patients. And indeed, Health IT Analytics reports that the EHR was imposed with, quote, very little hard evidence about how computer-based workflows and automated data-driven analytic systems would impact critical patient care. One group that pushed for the EHR mandate, the Center for, Leadership Te the Center for Information Technology Leadership, actually admitted that, quote, 
few data exist about the clinical impact it would bring, end quote. But proponents of the mandate were undeterred. They promised Congress the one thing Congress wanted, cost containment. For example, the RAND Corporation estimated a savings of $77 billion each year. Obama's election team used that number to call for EHRs during his campaign. This claim continued despite the Congressional Budget Office saying that RAND had ignored studies that found zero or negative net savings. In fact, CBO predicted that mandating EHRs would impose a huge cost on providers, leaving smaller providers with insufficient resources. And so it is. The savings and the profits accumulate to the payers, not the providers. For example, while doctors are selling their offices and becoming employees of big systems because they can't afford the EHR mandate, Optum Insights, the data division of United Health Group, reported revenues of $8.1 billion in 2017 alone. An entire section of my book is devoted to the costs of the mandate. I found setup costs range from $15,000 to $70,000 per practitioner. Subscription fees are as high as $2,000 per month per, phys per physician. There are also support fees, cybersecurity insurance, interfacing fees in the tens of thousands of dollars, re replacement and updating costs, technical support, licenses, data center costs, bandwidth, customizations, third-party software, and the cost of time for research, buying, and training. One physician told me that his 10-physician practice had to add seven full-time staff just to deal with the EHR. Then there are the costs related to hacking. The EHR mandate combined with the various government health information exchanges puts everyone's data in reach of hackers. Costs related to ransomware attacks include the services necessary to try to stop the attacks, the loss of business during the attack, the recovery from the attack, um, the cost with notifying patients when the attack happens, post-attack lawsuits, and possible HIPAA fines. Earlier this year, a two-doctor specialty practice refused to pay the ransom, so the hackers wiped the EHR system clean of all their patient data. The doctors chose to shut down the clinic permanently and retire, rather than try to start all over again. And this, of course, was a loss for their patients. EHRs are also unsafe. In 2010, the FDA reported 43 injured patients and six deaths from health information technology and called it likely the tip of the iceberg. The EHR has been listed for several years in a top 10 hazards list. In 2016, a study found nearly 40% of medication errors were missed by the EHR alert system. One study, found, one study found 22 new errors from computerized physician order entry. The chapter called Death, Injury, and Hazardous Conditions looks at these dangers in detail. In addition, EHRs interfere in medical decisions, limit patient interactions, disrupt the patient-doctor relationship, and turn doctors into data clerks. The third section of the book, called Clinical Chaos, includes studies such as a 2016 study that found that doctors spend only 27% of their time with patients and 49.2% of the time on the EHR and desk work, plus 
one to two hours of personal time each night doing additional computer and clerical work so that they can qualify as having uh, sufficient funds under the quality measurement criteria. This is known as pajama time. As a result, EHRs are the leading cause of physician burnout, which has led to a shocking number of physicians committing suicide each year. The EHR is one reason that 48% of more than 17,200 physicians surveyed said that they are considering an all-out exodus from the practice of medicine or a sharp reduction in the number of patients that they see each year. That's half of Americans' physicians at a time when 10,000 baby boomers are entering Medicare every day. Doctors are demoralized. The EHR is assailing their mission to care for patients and their ethical standards. Dr. Scott Jensen, a Minnesota senator, says the EHR, quote, is not a friend of efficiency or compassionate care. He says it tends to dehumanize the caring involved in the patient-doctor relationship. Dr. Lawrence Casalino, discussing the transformation of doctors into data clerks, says, if you want to dramatize it, a whole generation of physicians is being sacrificed. For them, it's all burden and no benefit as far as they can see. Marguerite, whose last name I can't pronounce, is the co-founder of BizMed, a software engineer and a proficient writer. She says EHRs have turned from EHRs have turned from humble tools of the trade to oppressive straitjackets for the practice of medicine. She says this is not a design flaw, but the actual purpose of the ER, which is to change the way medicine is practiced. Indeed, treatment protocols and coding systems embedded within the electronic health record restrict the ability of physicians to give patients the cares that they need. This problem will only get worse as artificial intelligence and black box algorithms are imposed on the practice of medicine through the electronic health record. One doctor responding to an article on physician burnout writes the following. We are not free to practice medicine anymore. Hospitals slash practice administrators are dictating what we should do, even when it is not good for our patients. Dr. Scott Silverstein, a physician and medical informatics specialist, whose relative died as a result of an EHR interface problem, says EHRs are, quote, enterprise-wide command and control systems through which all medical transactions have to pass, controlling clinicians and clinical resources, end quote. He calls, it, he calls its rollout a grand national experiment in social reengineering of medicine with no patient-informed consent. Fully 60% of physicians say EHRs have detracted from their interaction with patients. A nurse who recently retired told me that 85 to 90% of her time each day was with the computer, not with patients. Don Rucker, National Coordinator for Health IT, said, everybody else has used computers to create less work for themselves. We've used com computers to create more work for ourselves. Well, I would have to say that I believe that's because the government EHR was designed by and made for people outside the exam room, not for the patients and doctors inside the exam room and at the bedside. Its purpose, its true purpose, its primary purpose is not patient care. Judith Faulkner, owner of Epic, one of the nation's largest EHR companies, has a personal net worth now 
of $3.3 billion. She wants the EHR to become a CHR, or Comprehensive Health Record. She wants to, quote, look at who you are, what you eat, how much you sleep, and what your social conditions are, end quote. And she wants all that data digitized and in a computerized, linkable, online accessible record, preferably in the cloud. This would become a comprehensive dossier on every American. Because of HIPAA, the permissive data sharing rule, which not everybody understands, all this data could be made available to government agencies, other providers, and a cast and crew of up to 1.5 million business associates without your consent, unless your state law requires patient consent. And that's because HIPAA does not require patient consent for the sharing of your data. Dr. Tom Davis walked away from his practice of 3,000 patients because he believes the data collected through the EHR is being used for purposes that do not directly benefit the patient. So he said it would be unethical for him to represent otherwise to his patients. That was a report from the Medical Economics. The EHR is key to sharing and using your data without your consent. Eric Schmidt, former executive chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, says that prior to the EHR mandate, it was impossible to get the healthcare data. He says he'd like sensor data, plus continuous behavioral data from smartphones and smartwatches, plus molecular data to be fed into the EHR. Big government has arrived, and he is in the exam room. He's pretty big already, but he wants to be much bigger. He wants every American to have a national patient ID, a unique patient identifier that will hook all the patient's medical records together into a single record on every person, a record that no person can escape, or a record that will not allow you to have a second, a fresh second opinion about anything. The US House recently passed an appropriations bill with language to do just that, which hopefully the US Senate will stop. The EHR has turned the healthcare system on its head. Patients who refuse data collection can often face denial of service. Highly skilled physicians are forced to violate their patient's confidentiality if they want to be paid. In short, doctors and patients who refuse to serve the system are penalized. Furthermore, outsiders have been authorized to use patient data for their own slice and dice purposes, including research, rationing, predictive analytics, ongoing surveillance, control of treatment decisions, and sales and marketing. This is why we say, he who holds the data makes the rules. It is very clear that privacy rights are the foundation of freedom, personal control, and individual liberty. I could go on to talk about the surveys that show Americans still prize privacy. I could talk about the constitutional rights being violated with government access. I could talk about the push to population health and away from individualized care. The fact that HIPAA does not protect privacy and all the government surveillance systems being set up and fed by the electronic health record. But I'll end with this. The last chapter of my book has four lists of action steps. One for Congress, one for state legislators, one for physicians and other clinicians, and one for patients and citizens. Last week, our organization also launched Patient Toolbox a 24-7 resource to help patients when they face coercive situations in the exam room. Find it at patienttoolbox.org. It will expand as patients share situations with us. At a time when patients are vulnerable, the EHR has put them in even greater danger. 
This book is a call to action, a call to kick Big Brother out of the exam room. It's a call to restore patient safety, privacy rights, and freedom for patients and doctors. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I wanted to start out by thanking the Cato Institute for having me here today. Um, I also would like to thank Twyla and Michael for the interesting conversation I think we're going to be having over the next hour, hour and a half or so. Let me begin by telling you a little bit about myself. I'm an internal medicine physician. I practice and I see patients in the Permanente Medical Group in Northern California. I've been doing so for the past 15 years. I'm also the Chief Information Officer of the Permanente Federation. You may have heard of Kaiser Permanente, um, but you may not have heard of the Permanente Federation. So let me just take a moment to describe what that is. It's a collection of eight medical groups, independent, self-governed, physician-led, multi-specialty, spread throughout the United States. We have nearly 23,000 physicians, and we take care of nearly 12.3 million members across the country. We practice what we call Permanente Medicine. And what that means is that we put the patient at the center of everything that we do. We practice medicine differently than other healthcare organizations out there. And I think that will come out through the course of this conversation. Accordingly, we use the electronic health record in different ways as well. Three important points I just want to start out with here as we get into the discussion. The first is that Kaiser Permanente and the Permanente Federation are an integrated healthcare system. That's different from other healthcare organizations. And what that means is that our physician groups partner with our hospitals and our health plans to provide the high quality care that we do. The second is that we actually, um, we practice uh, uh, high quality of care. And that means that we use our electronic health record to look at the data that we have within the system to identify patients at risk and to tailor our, our treatment plans to the benefit of the patient. We also do uh, autonomy. Our physicians have autonomy in terms of the way they practice medicine. Um, I'll give an example of the interaction between the electronic health record and our physicians. I was seeing a patient the other day, and they came in with a red, hot, painful, swollen arm. My decision was to prescribe a particular medication. It was obviously a soft tissue infection, and they needed an antibiotic. When I went to the electronic health system to prescribe the antibiotic that I chose, the computer alerted me, and it said, this patient's on a blood thinning medication. Do I really want to prescribe this particular antibiotic? Because it's going to increase the risk of this patient from bleeding. Instead, I chose a different antibiotic with the help of the computer system. The patient took it. He went home. He came back to see me about a week later. The infection was gone. He didn't suffer any side effects from this particular interaction. I was happy because I didn't cause any harm to the patient. I could have if I had chosen the antibiotic that I initially prescribed. The patient was happy because he received high quality care 
that was quick, it was efficient, and he was better. So while the computer helped me, I was able to make the decision in the best interest of my patient. I also want to talk about value-based medicine, value-based care. That's what we do at Kaiser Permanente, and that's what we do with Permanente Medicine. That's in contrast with what happens in other organizations that practice fee-for-service medicine. Fee-for-service medicine incentivizes physicians to perform a higher volume of procedures. In Kaiser Permanente, we incentivize physicians based on outcomes and based on quality. There are three quality types of things that I'd like to talk about here. The first is around cardiovascular death. One in four Americans die of cardiovascular disease. That's a really high number. Thankfully, cardiovascular death is decreasing within America. There's been about a 25% decrease in cardiovascular death between the year 2000 and 2015. Within Kaiser Permanente, with the use of our integrated healthcare system and our use of our electronic health records, we've been able to decrease the risk of cardiovascular death by 48%. We've been able to reduce the risk of stroke death by 55%. With respect to colorectal cancer, we think actually that is a largely preventable disease. And with the integrated health system that we have, with the information we have in the electronic health record, we've been able to decrease the risk of colorectal cancer death by 52%. 52%. So with respect to the things that are causing death within Americans, the two highest causes, cardiovascular death and cancer death, we're tackling these with our integrated healthcare system and our electronic health records. How we do that is around our population care, evidence-based medicine, and our focus on preventing disease and promoting health promotion. So with our electronic health record, we have basically information about our patients, who has received screening for these particular tests, who has these particular diseases, who's at risk for developing complications from these diseases, and we're able to put this information in the hands of our physicians. We have a program in my facility called I Saved a Life. Let me take a moment to describe what that is. I have a patient, we'll call her Mrs. Jones. She's 65 years old. She doesn't see me often because she's healthy. She's very active, she's a runner, she plays tennis, but she has a bum knee. That's the most technical medical term I'm gonna to use today, bum knee. Apologize to my mom for sending me to college and medical school to give that diagnosis. <laughs> but um, uh, it was tricompartmental tri degenerative osteoarthritis of her left knee. And she sees her orthopedic specialist more than she sees me uh, for the knee and the care that she receives for the knee. Dr. Black is the orthopedic specialist. And one day when she, Ms. Mrs. Jones came to see Dr. Black, she noted in the electronic health system that she had her flu shot. She had her pap smear. She was up to date with her tetanus shot, but she hadn't received her mammogram. She was overdue. Dr. Black talked to Mrs. Jones and said, you know, this is an important test for you to get done. Let's get you that test done today. After a little bit of conversation, Mrs. Jones went to radiology that same day. 
Unfortunately, she was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. Fortunately for her, she was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. I can't think of any other healthcare organization out there that would have an orthopedic surgeon who would be typically focusing on this patient's knee provide this level of service and this level of care for the patient. Mrs. Jones was able to get this treated early before this cancer spread to other parts of her body, before additional complications could have occurred, before the cost of the care that she would have potentially have had to receive would have occurred because she had this early intervention. We call this program I Saved a Life because, in fact, Mrs. Jones had her life saved. And we recognize these physicians on a monthly basis. There are dozens of physicians across our medical center who are recognized for having saved lives. But the thing is, it's not just the orthopedic specialist. It's not just the internal medicine physician. It's also our nurses, our medical assistants, other members of the care team, physical therapists, behavioral therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. They all have this window into the patient's well-being, their health, and can see it very plainly and clearly, which allows us to act on, on the, in the best interest of the patient. Mrs. Jones may not be here today if Dr. Black, an orthopedic specialist, didn't act on her behalf. These are just three different ways with respect to our coordinated care, our uh, value-based uh, medicine, and our physician autonomy, which allows us to provide the high level of care that we provide at Kaiser Permanente and with Permanente Medicine. I'll stop there, and we'll have additional conversation. Thank you again, Twyla and Dr. Lee. Um, uh, so I'm going to be, take a step back and talk a little more broadly about electronic medical records and, 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 and why we're not seeing them uh, uh, more in the health sector of the economy. I want to start with something that happened in New Orleans in 2005. Uh, in late August, uh, Hurricane Katrina ravaged and flooded New Orleans. And when that happened, an estimated one million patients lost all of their medical records. Uh, why did that happen? Well, it happened because their physicians and other providers were keeping those records on paper. The Medical Center of Louisiana lost 400,000 medical records. According to the American uh, Health Information Management Association, they were, quote, reduced to pulp. Every paper record was destroyed. Uh, Clinicians described their record rooms being, dis being submerged in five feet of water. One nurse practitioner said, we lost everything. Papers were stuck together and full of mud. Nothing could be retrieved. The chief of hematology and oncology at Otzner, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, health system in um, Baton Rouge, pointed out that, uh, their, uh, that facilities in New Orleans uh, had their, all their records easily sitting in foul-smelling water for three weeks. They're all lost. Uh, so when patients with uh, HIV, cancer, other serious illnesses finally relocated and reconnected with healthcare providers, their physicians had no idea how far their diseases had pro progressed and uh, what sort of medications they were on. So contrast that to something that happened in uh, New York City on September 11, 2001. Uh, terrorists attacked the World Trade Center, uh, bringing uh, the Twin Towers uh, to the ground and killing thousands of uh, people from uh, all, across the, the, all across the globe. 
the collapse of the Twin Towers destroyed many paper court records and other historical documents uh, that, uh, that various offices in those buildings housed. But uh, after some time searching, I have still been unable to find a single instance of a financial institution uh, that was housed in the World Trade Center uh, losing any financial records due to those attacks. The likely reason is that those institutions kept those records electronically and backed them up off-site. Uh, yet in 2001, only an estimated 18% of office-based physicians were using electronic medical records. And by 2005, when Katrina hit New Orleans, that share had risen to just 25%, according to the National Center for Health Statistics. So why the difference? Why had the financial sector gotten the message that electronic records can provide value and make records more secure and the health sector had not? It's not that doctors and others don't know that accessible medical records are valuable. I mean, think about this example. Uh, back in 1937, the SE, when the SE Massengill Company uh, basically distributed poison, uh, as, uh, an antibiotic mixed with poison uh, in, in something called elixir sulfonilamide, uh, distributed that across the country, uh, it ended up killing 105 patients who took it. The reason it didn't kill more than 105 patients is because federal investigators were able to go to the places where those medicines had been shipped and they were able to look at records where the records were accessible. They were able to find the patients who had been given that medication, go to them and, and take that medication away, that poison away from them before it killed any more adults or children. The majority of the people uh, who, who died were children. But the reason uh, that more people, that as many as 105 people died, uh, is because, or one of the reasons is because a lot of physicians didn't even keep records on to whom they had prescribed this medication, and a lot of pharmacists didn't, and some of them even destroyed the records uh, because they feared liability. Uh, it's also not because uh, uh, we don't know that. Uh, that uh, electronic medical records in particular are valuable. You may recall this drug. Uh, it is uh, what we call a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, Vioxx. A lot of people were taking it for their bum knees between 1999 and 2003 until the FDA was able to uh, establish that, uh, that Vioxx was uh, causing heart attacks. It was leading to a lot of adverse cardiac events among uh, the uh, millions of people who took it. And they were able to discern this because an FDA official worked with Kaiser Permanente of Northern California, uh, combing through the electronic medical records that Kaiser Permanente kept, keeps on all of their patients. They identified, uh, they looked at electronic medical records for about 1.4 million Kaiser members, including about 27,000 who took Vioxx and uh, 40,000 who took a, a competing drug. And they were able to conclude uh, from the information that Kaiser's electronic medical record made available to them, that Vioxx uh, contributed to nearly 28,000 heart attacks uh, over the, uh, during the time it was on the market, uh, many of which proved fatal. Uh, Kaiser Permanente even bragged about its role in helping the FDA identify the harmful effects of Vioxx, something that did not emerge during the phase one, phase two, and phase three uh, clinical trials that were required for FDA approval. I think Kaiser Permanente was right to boast about this because when the FDA needed the data, Kaiser, were, well, they were the only people around who had those data. Uh, so, so why doesn't 
uh, more of the healthcare sector use electronic medical records to make care better for patients? Is it is healthcare a special sector of the economy where this sort of thing just doesn't work? So they're just not going to adopt these sort of uh, quality improving and often costs reducing technologies where, where, where markets just won't offer patients this innovation? I think the answer is no. The reason patients don't have access to functional and user-friendly and portable or interoperable medical record, electronic medical records, I think is twofold. First, what, what has happened is state and federal governments have put a lot of obstacles in the way of the market delivering these innovations. Uh, they've crippled the market's ability to offer such innovations. And second, the federal government has taken upon itself the task of delivering this innovation in lieu of uh, market doing it, which is going about as well as you might expect. So how has the government blocked electronic health records, electronic medical records? Well, basically, they're basically, it begins with how you pay healthcare providers. There are basically two ways of paying doctors and other healthcare providers. The first one is you can pay them a fee for each individual service they provide. And so the more services they provide, the more fees they collect, we call this fee-for-service payment. The other way is to uh, make one payment for a bundle of services. Uh, and at the limit, you can make one payment uh, to a healthcare provider to provide all the services that a patient might need. We call that capitation, or we often call it prepayment. But those are, uh, at, at two poles, the two main ways that you can pay healthcare providers. When it comes to electronic health records, these terms, what we call, might call these terms of exchange, whether you're paying for individual services or you're making one lump sum payment for all the care that a patient might need, these terms of exchange create very different incentives for healthcare providers when it comes to uh, electronic health records and other uh, 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 dimensions of quality. From the, think about it, from the perspective of a provider, fee for, the fee-for-service approach internalizes the costs of investing in uh, and, and using a system of, of electronic health records, but it externalizes a lot of the benefits. So you're a doctor, you want to adopt an EHR system, you've got to lay out all the money for that, but, but if it reduces duplication and it reduces medical errors and maybe helps you avoid unnecessary care, well, that means in a fee-for-service world that you're out the money you would have made on the duplicative care or on the remedial care to make a patient better after a medical error. Or you're out the money you would have made on unnecessary services. So fee-for-service actually makes it a lot harder for, uh, for providers to adopt electronic health records. By contrast, the prepayment approach, the lump sum per patient approach, internalizes the costs and a lot of the benefits of electronic health records. Think about it, if you're a health system like Kaiser Permanente that combines both healthcare delivery and insurance under one umbrella, one corporate umbrella, then uh, all the money you receive in health insurance premiums uh, is, uh, you might think of it as a global budget that you have to provide care to all of your enrollees. And anything that you, you save avoiding duplicative care, well, this, that benefits the system. The benefits are internalized to the system. Any money you save avoiding medical errors or unnecessary care, that, that those savings are internalized to the system. So it's no accident, it's no coincidence that Kaiser Permanente uh, and plans like Kaiser Permanente, I, I want to say plans like Kaiser Permanente, there used to be one, but then you bought it. It used to be group, Kaiser and Group Health Cooperative, and then Kaiser took over Group Health Cooperative of Puget Sound, and so now Kaiser is the only uh, fully integrated prepaid game in town. But 
but what prepayment does is it allows Kaiser Permanente uh, to, uh, has led Kaiser Permanente to lead the market in developing both comprehensive uh, medical records, which were originally on paper because it is a fully integrated system, but also electronic medical records, uh, as, which, uh, an effort which began uh, uh, as early as 1961, according to former Kaiser CEO George Halverson. And, and yet, so, so we've got these two competing types of payment systems. One discourages electronic medical records. The other actively encourages it. And which one of these two payment systems do you think government has been favoring for the past 100 years? The one that discourages electronic health records. Uh, and government has, 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 has encouraged fee-for-service or uh, created barriers to entry for prepaid group plans through uh, a raft of interventions in the health sector of the economy. Government licensing of clinicians. Government licensing of insurance plans uh, and, ins and insurance companies, corporate practice of medicine laws, certificate of need laws, t the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance, the Medicare program, the Medicaid program, and more. All of these government interventions either erect barriers to entry into the market for plans like Kaiser Permanente, your integrated prepaid plans, or they heavily subsidize the uh, fee-for-service insurers and providers, which makes it harder for those plans to compete. And yet. When people want to explain the lack of electronic health records in the U.S. health sector, they, 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 they just scream market failure when uh, the story is a very different one. So I would have liked to have seen, uh, so uh, I enjoyed Twyla's book. I would have liked to have seen uh, the book do more to explain in the history of how government has blocked markets from providing the quality enhancements that electronic health records uh, offer in a patient-friendly and secure way that caters, for example, to the preferences of patients who would make you know, different trade-offs when it comes to competing values such as convenience and privacy. Some patients will want an extremely secure medical, uh, electronic medical record that absolutely no one can access for any uh, you know, public health purpose or any sort of data, mi data mining activities. I think they should have the choice to contract with that sort of, uh, with that sort of a health plan. But if someone else wants that, thinks that trading some of that privacy might get them a lower cost health plan or better health care, they should have that right rather than government make that decision for them. And I, I think where, but I think where Twyla's book really excels is in describing just how ham-handed the government's efforts to promote electronic health records has been. Uh, she mentioned, uh, you know, government uh, uh, having prevented markets from delivering them, it's now throwing tens of billions of taxpayer dollars at its own effort to deliver electronic health records. Compliance has been impressive. Uh, as has been the wealth accumulation by those who sell the government-designed EHR, the private sector actors who lobbied for these subsidies and now uh, have become billionaires by selling these products. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think it was, said that every billionaire is a policy failure. I'm not sure I agree with him in general, but when it comes to the stimulus bill and the, uh, and the billionaires that have been made with the government's efforts to promote electronic, to subsidize electronic health records, I think he's absolutely right. But there's also been a lot of evidence of waste and some evidence of harm to patients and, and really evidence that the main impact of these government-designed electronic health records is, is that they have helped providers build the government and build, uh, uh, charge taxpayers more and more efficiently. Uh, I also uh, would have liked to see more on the benefits of electronic health records. I mean, saving people from drugs that would hurt them, that's a really big benefit of electronic health records. Uh, and, and I think there are other benefits out there that would have been more obvious if, if, if we allowed electronic health records to uh, uh, develop in a more iterative way than, um, than 
the way the government is doing it, which is just throwing money at the problem. And I also think I would have liked to have seen uh, 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 you know, uh, more clarity on the important distinction between a subsidy and a mandate. What the stimulus bill did by throwing 37 or however many billion dollars at electronic health records was not mandate that providers adopt electronic health records. What it said was, Medicare will pay you more if you adopt electronic health records, health records and less if you don't. Yeah, you can call that a requirement, but it's not really a mandate because it's not a regulation of private activity. It's not, it doesn't take away anyone's freedom of action. Providers who don't want to comply are free to accept less money from Medicare, as Twilight points out, some have, or they're free to walk away from the program. There's no mandate that they do this if they want to keep uh, treating patients. Now, in Massachusetts, it, looked like, it looks like the, uh, Massachusetts has tried to make the adoption of electronic health records a condition of, of, of licensure. If you, so if you want to practice medicine, absolutely you have to adopt uh, an electronic health record. That is a mandate. That is a regulation of private activity, but I think subsidies are different. Uh, and uh, a subsidy also gives patients who fear their medical privacy the freedom to, to do the same, to walk away from the program that's, that's, uh, that's requiring the, record, the uh, electronic record system that they think is going to violate their privacy. And uh, they, might losing a, they might lose a government subsidy, but losing a government subsidy is not the same as losing one's freedom. I think of much greater concern is when the government allows you no alternative uh, to the rules that it adopts. So, um, oh, I skipped over that for the government failure part, but that's a, uh, a fun addition to any slideshow. So I will leave it at that, and I look forward uh, to the questions that you have, both uh, our audience here in the Hayek Auditorium at the Cato Institute and our audience online. Thank you. And uh, I do want to uh, emphasize that uh, uh, during question and answer, uh, if you have a question, please wait to be called on. Uh, please identify yourself. Uh, and, uh, uh, and any relevant affiliation. And please make sure it's a question uh, and that you get to it rather quickly. Thank you. You, sir, in the front row. Herb Rose. Um, I've uh, been to a few of these events over the years. Um, I remember that uh, uh, in the Clinton administration, they tried to get off the ground a uh, healthcare uh, system uh, developed. Um, a lot of people mumbled about it at the time. Um, not too many people did anything about it. And then we got to the Obama administration. Uh, a few years before the you know, Obama administration, PBS did a special on healthcare systems around the world. And they looked at Healthcare systems in. Uh, this is one uh, of those long setups to the question, right? Okay, so okay. I'm, I'm getting to it. Um, they looked at uh, about eight different countries, and each one had some very positive aspects to it, and some had negative aspects. I was impressed mostly with a Japanese system in which every citizen was issued a card which had their entire medical history on that card. They could go anywhere in the country uh, to a hospital, to a physician, and um, the uh, person who examined them would have information and also input information in. 
Um, I'm going to have no credibility with the rest of the audience, though, unless you get to the, unless I enforce the, quest, the brief question rule. So what is your question, sir? So what I wondered was, uh, why didn't we have a system like this in this country? Um, frequently, my primary care physician didn't get information from a specialist who I saw, uh, even though I requested it. And uh, is it that uh, politicians don't watch PBS? Uh, or is it that uh, there's too much hubris in this country uh, that we can do better than any other country? Uh, I posed this question to my primary care physician, and uh, he said he had a friend who tried to start something like this, but it was ineffective. Okay. So maybe you can answer the question as to okay. why we never why, adopted a system like the Japanese. Had. Why don't we have that sort of, a, of medical record system where it's on a card you can take to any provider and they can access all of your medical data? Dr. Lee, Twyla? So, you know, it's a country that was built on individual freedom and individual rights. And for the government to issue a card that would contain all of that information on every individual is uh, a card that would violate the constitutional rights of four individuals, which, of course, the Fourth Amendment says that you have to get, you have to have a search warrant, right, in order to have access to homes, papers, effects persons. And so if the government has all of that information by fiat, in, in essence that they just give us a card and all the information has to be given to them, that is, it would be a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So I'd like to respond to that. So, um, thanks for asking the question because at Kaiser Permanente we have the ability to do that. It's not a card, but we can have the patient go in and have a USB flash drive uh, with their information on there. And they can take it to anywhere they want to, anywhere they go within the country if they're traveling, if they have to have receive care outside of Kaiser Permanente. That information is with them wherever they go. Um, so it does allow uh, the physicians that are treating the patients outside of our system to know what are their problems, what are their medications, what are the lab test results. All that information is carried with them so that the doctors can make the best decisions they can for their patients. We also have an online system called kp.org. The patients can log in whenever they want to, whenever they need to. And I can envision a patient being uh, cared for outside of Kaiser Permanente, logging in, and basically seeing all that information there so that they can receive the best care outside of our system when that, unfortunately, does happen. The other thing that I know is that there are private physicians that do very much the same thing. They have, a, particularly in Minnesota, where I come from, where a lot of uh, patients will go south Right, there will be snowbirds. And so they will just simply put all of their information on a flash drive and send it with the patient so that they can be cared for in Florida or Arizona or whatever that the medical records are with them. So uh, I think it was Jiffy Lube had an ad on TV several years ago where someone was driving across country and something happened to their car and they needed to stop into a Jiffy Lube and they got whatever that was done. And the Jiffy Lube, because they had this person's tags in their files, they brought up their complete, you know, automotive maintenance record or, you know, whatever, all the services that Jiffy Lube provides anyway. They're not fully integrated at Jiffy Lube. Uh, but they said, we noticed you haven't, you're overdue for an oil change. Would you like an oil change? And probably most people would see that ad and think, oh, that's neat. But the healthcare nerd looks at it and, see, and says, oh, my gosh, why can't I have that for, for, uh, for my body as well as for my car? I think there's a lot of value to be provided by that sort of portability and interoperability of, of medical records. Uh, the question, why don't we have it here, I think Twyla gets at part of it, is 
there's a lot of suspicion about government. I think rightly so. Again, I draw a distinction between, uh, between mandates on the one hand and subsidies uh, on the other for which you can uh, uh, sign up or not. Of course, the taxes to fund those subsidies are not voluntary. But enrolling in the Medicare program is voluntary. And enrolling in Social Security and accepting those government benefits is voluntary. I don't think it implicates the Fourth Amendment in the same way when we're talking about a condition placed on a receipt, the receipt of a government subsidy. But I think it definitely implicates the Fourth Amendment if the government is saying, we are going to collect all of your medical information. You have no choice about that. So uh, that's one of the reasons is because even when it's not a mandate, even when it's just a subsidy, a condition of a, a government subsidy, there's a lot of suspicion about letting the government access uh, that, have all that information about you, have it someplace where the government can access it easily, or having the government decide that uh, it will be the one uh, to determine whether you know, your information gets shared. But the other reason is, there are, there's, there's money to be made in providing that sort of convenience to consumers. There is, except the, uh, but no one's making that money, well, except for Kaiser to some extent. No one is able to do that because of all the barriers that I mentioned that the government has put in the way of these sorts of plans that could provide that sort of convenience. Uh, you know, as an example uh, of how uh, something that doesn't seem directly uh, to, to, to impede directly these sorts of conveniences, uh, the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance essentially says that either you let your employer control a huge chunk of your income, which ends up being about $14,000 for people with family coverage, in which case it's tax-free. If you let your employer control it, choose your health plan, it's tax-free. But if you want to control that $14,000 yourself, you have to pay taxes on it, maybe three, dollars $4,000 in taxes. Uh, so if I want to control my health insurance dollars and use them to purchase a plan other than the one my employer offers, maybe one that offers these sorts of conveniences, I get penalized by the government for doing that. And there are reasons, I think, why employers are less likely to choose managed care plans than other plans. But that's just an example of, uh, of how extensive these barriers are to those sorts of conveniences that you and I would like to see. So I would, I would I'm sorry, I see your question there. I just want to say something about subsidies uh, versus mandates. I understand what you're saying, it's a quasi-mandate because there's a lot of uh, doctors, and there certainly are hospitals, who much of their business is having to do with Medicare, and they cannot afford to take the, the reduced payment for every Medicare patient. So even though it is a, you know, not a mandate, it essentially works out to be a mandate because they can't keep their doors open. And the other thing is that for doctors who go into these hospitals, right? So the hospital, maybe the doctor has only 40% or 30% that are Medicare, right? But the hospital has 60% of their patients that are Medicare. So the hospital decides to have the electronic health record because they can't afford to not have all of those patients be fully paid because after all, they aren't even paid at the cost of care anyway for those Medicare patients. And now it's a further reduction. And so, and so the, the patient from that doctor who has decided maybe to have a, a paper record, right? But the patient goes into the hospital. Hospitals decided to have an electronic health record. It's very difficult for the patients to uh, not be in the system. And it's very difficult for the doctors in the hospitals to not take that money from the Medicare, which doesn't pay them well anyway, and then have it reduced. And so, yes, I agree with you. It's not a mandate. 
It's a quasi-mandate, and it's meant to get everybody in. And of course, the hospitals went from something like, I don't know, I think it was like 12% had electronic health records before the quasi-mandate, and 94% have it now. There's a reason, right? And that's, a, that's because they couldn't afford that reduction in payment. So it's coercive. It's a coercive provision. Josh. Not J Jacob, why am I calling you Josh? I've another, we have the former, a bearded former Cato intern named Josh, <laughs> who's not here for some reason. <laughs> is it working? Oh, now it is. Now it is. Hi, uh, Jacob Rich from Reason Foundation. I'm just curious what your book has to say about prescription drug monitoring programs. Yes. Both Oregon and I think Utah sued the DEA because the DEA raided prescription drug monitoring programs without a warrant with internal subpoenas, and they said, hey, that's violating the Fourth Amendment. But both times the court said, well, this is a highly regulated market, and doctors and patients should have no expectation of privacy. So I'm just curious what your book has to say about that. Yeah, so I was just, I was just trying to think exactly what it was, oh, it's called Tracking Americans in Sickness and Health. It's that chapter. And there's a whole section about the prescription monitoring programs, including the fact that they don't work like people say that they're, that they're supposed to work. So I wanted to give the history of it, and I wanted to give what people say about whether it really works to stop everything that they say is going to be stopped. And yes, all of the entities that want to have access, in Minnesota, for instance, it's just gotten, it started out as this little thing to help doctors to stop patients from doctor shopping, right? And then it's, it's grown into this huge thing where they're now doing analysis with it. Um, there's a search warrant provision with it. It's just, it's just bloomed into something bigger and bigger as a program. And now we have discovered as well that a lot of the prescription monitoring systems are sharing data with each other. So for instance, when Prince died, right, when Prince died, there are all sorts of people they discovered that came from outside other of entities that have access to the monitoring systems in their states, right, that could come into Minnesota's and uh, find out the information on Prince's use of opioids. So we definitely, there's definitely a section in here on those. How about all the way in the back on the right? Yes, hi, thank you. Um, I'm Russ Green with CrossFit Inc. Um, my question is about uh, technology currently being developed with U.S. government funding and how that intersects, sorry, intersects with um, electronic health records. So currently, NIH is funding um, technology that would integrate uh, wearable devices and smartphone data into electronic health records. So you could imagine your physical activity, your physical location even your internal biomarkers being uploaded 24-7 into your EHRs. And at the same time, the DOD is funding research into devices that would um, analyze your sweat, and then from that conclude whether or not you've taken your medication, um, your hormonal levels, whether you're under stress, et cetera. So, you know, if the title of the book is uh, Big Brother in the Exam Room, might it not actually be more accurate to say Big Brother, period? You know, if the government and the healthcare systems have access to our location, what we're doing, what we're eating at all times. And again, this is not just for medicalized um, 
locations and persons, but for everyone because it's preventive health. It's intended to prevent heart disease, to prevent type 2 diabetes. So in light of this technology, um, which is currently being developed, what hope really is there then for protecting civil liberties and privacy? So uh, I think there's at least two questions. One is your very last question, and then the first one having to do with all of this integration that's planned. Um, and I don't know if you were in the beginning and could he heard me speak. Yes, no? Um, oh, OK, there we go, OK. So, um, so there's, a, there's a quote in here from Eric Schmidt, who is the, um, the um, He's got a new title now, but he was part of Google and Alphabet. He was the, the chair. And um, he really wants to have all the biosensor data. He wants it all in. Um, and Judith Faulkner, who has the largest electronic health record system, there's a quote in here talking about how she wants to know what we eat and uh, how often, uh, how much we sleep and, and all of that sort of thing on all our behaviors, et cetera. That, this is called population health, and there's just a drive towards population health. I was listening to a speaker last night talking about how population health is what happens outside the exam room, outside the four walls, and how they're trying to essentially get into people's lives to keep them healthy outside the exam room. And so this is truly, I mean, this is true. That's why Judith Faulkner wants a comprehensive health record, which would become a dossier on the American people, because it would be not only what's in the exam room, but what's out, happening outside the exam room. Um, so it's not only clinical information, but behavioral and um, um, all of that kind of information. Familial information, genetic information, all, all of that put together, using the smartphones, using the um, Fitbits, you know, all of that kind of thing. So when you ask the question then about you know, what hope is there, so the real, the real hope is part of it is in public awareness and in, public, uh, in the public actually demanding from Congress to undo what they did with HIPAA. And so HIPAA is not a privacy rule. So this is like the biggest deception foisted upon the American people. According to HHS, 1.5, uh, 2.2 million people can have access to your medical records without consent if those who hold them, the providers, share it. They don't have to get your consent for that. Um, but a lot of people feel like, oh, you know, an electronic health record or, or a, a data system or, you know, um, a national patient ID, whatever, it's okay because we're protected by HIPAA. But you're not protected by HIPAA. And so, um, and so part of it is just public awareness, going to your members of Congress, but even more importantly to your state legislators and saying, give us a real privacy law. In Minnesota, we have a real privacy law, and we've had to protect it against the data and healthcare industry for the last five years, who have been coming after it to get rid of it because they want all of our data. But we have a, a law that says you have to get patient consent before you can share it for treatment, payment, healthcare operations, almost anything except emergency conditions. Um, and and we're, the only, we're the only state that has that. Even the California law, is not, which has been touted as this great privacy law, has exceptions for HIPAA. And HIPAA, of course, doesn't protect anybody's privacy. There's an entire chapter in here to, um, to, to uh, show how HIPAA is not a privacy protecting law and how it has put us into this state where all the data is everybody else's. And so it's really about uh, reenacting patient consent requirements. It really is, and it's also about finding doctors who are outside and who are going outside and who are leaving. So we've got something called the Wedge of Health Freedom, which are doctors who take only cash, check, or charge. 
they are no longer signing contracts with the government and they don't sign any contracts with the health plans and we're inviting doctors to come back to freedom and to come back to this kind of relationship with their patients where they protect the patient from the outsiders who all want access to their data for their own purposes and uh, who want to control what happens in the exam room and who want to make money off of it. And so, and so there is definitely hope, but, it's, but part of it's going to have to be with HIPAA and the other parts of it's going to have to be doctors who decide that they've, they've got an oath to their patients and they're, they're not going to let others tell them how to practice. Yeah, so um, let me respond to that. So um, the, the, the concept that you're talking about with respect to your watch or your phone or other devices like that that can monitor you outside of the exam room, outside of the four walls of the hospital, um, I think of that as something called remote patient monitoring. We've got that within Kaiser Permanente for patients that want that, for patients that need that. So we monitor subset of patients who have high blood pressure, subset of patients who have diabetes, patients who have congestive heart failure. We take that data in patients who enroll in this program. We're not forcing anyone to enroll in the program. We pick people, take that data and allow convenient care to happen. Patients may live many miles away from the facility that they're being taken care of. So instead of them coming in to get their blood pressure checked, they've got to monitor at home. There's data that shows that people who have their home blood pressure monitored have more accurate blood pressure monitoring compared to patients who come into the office. This is a phenomenon of high white coat hypertension. So you get a better accurate, uh, more accurate data, better data to act on so that you can provide the best quality outcomes as possible. Um, and at the same time, like I said, Patients aren't being forced to do that within our system. We give them the option. Here's a convenient option to receive the care that we can provide. If you'd like to accept this, we have physicians on the other end. We have care teams on the other end to see this information. Now, believe me, as a physician, we don't want to see reams and reams of blood pressure data. It's going to fill our chart. We want to see the most pertinent information that's going to allow us to act the best way on behalf of our patients to provide the highest quality care. Um, with respect to um, payment systems, um, healthcare is expensive. Nearly one in two Americans who are sick aren't able to afford healthcare, even when they actually have healthcare insurance already. Um, but what we're trying to do with Permanente Medicine and Kaiser Permanente is to identify diseases that haven't even happened yet. Take a look at conditions that people may have to try to prevent them from developing the complications. So I mentioned diabetes. If you have diabetes, you're at significantly higher risk of having eye problems, blindness, significantly higher risk of having cardiovascular disease, stroke, kidney failure. All of those things, all those conditions I just mentioned, have a much higher cost of care compared to what we can do ahead of time to prevent those diseases from happening prevent those complications. And so when we think about monitoring with respect to remote monitoring of glucose for diabetics, they don't have to necessarily come in so that we can tell them, hey, your blood sugar looks good or your blood pressure is elevated. We can do that remotely and get that information and tailor our the therapies and our treatment plans to these patients so that we prevent diseases from happening. Sir, on the aisle. Thank you. I'm Leon Weintraub. I have no health care affiliation. I wonder, two questions. N number one, how can I, as a patient, access either my own EHR 
or in general a form just to see what this what this EHR looks like and and second is there uh, uh, is there a secondary benefit perhaps in helping uh, study epidemiology and other things that the EHR can help with that we don't have in a segregated system okay. so um, I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier something called kp.org that's our Kaiser Permanente website it's a portal a patient portal that gives the patient a view of what their EHR looks like. So when you log in, you can take a look at your health record. You can take a look at the problems that have been identified. You can look at your lab test results. You can um, take a look at the allergies that you have, the immunizations that you've had done. So all that information that's collected in the EHR is visible on the patient end. In some health systems, we actually have the notes that the physicians have written visible to the patient so they can see exactly what the, the physicians were writing, what exactly the, the physicians were thinking about in creating their care plans. Um, and so um, it's, it's a very visible system that allows them to, a window into the electronic health record. And it allows them to actually um, take control of their healthcare in, the own, in, their, in their own hands. So they can understand the health conditions that they have. They can actually, within kp.org, send emails back and forth with the physician, take pictures of their skin conditions. They can schedule appointments, refill medications, all sorts of things like that that can be done within um, kpa.org. So I've, I've found that as a patient and my patients who interact with me through the system to be extremely beneficial so that we can provide the highest quality of, as possible and convenient. But I would, I would say that uh, probably what you're doing when you're looking into the patient portal is you're not seeing the EHR. You're seeing the PHR. You're seeing the personal health record, which is only a subset of everything that's in the electronic health record. And um, there's a quote in here of, um, it was um, Biden who wanted to have access to um, an entire medical record. And he was having essentially an argument with Judith Faulkner, the um, head of Epic. And, um, and she said, you know, why? And he said, I want it. And she said, it's, it's thousands and thousands of pages. You know, you'll never understand it. <laughs> and he was having none of it. He wanted to see the entire thing. But that's the thing. When you look into the portal, it won't be all the information in, in the electronic health record. You, you probably actually has, have to ask your doctor if you can look over the shoulder and start clicking through every possible thing that's in there. Uh, which may or may not all be accessible even to the doctor because there's financial information in there. There's also other things in there. Um, I think that what Biden said to her was none of your damn business why I want to look at it. So, like I was, so I thought, oh, <laughs> Joe, that's, I, was, I was with him on that, but I was also with her on uh, how he would not comprehend most of what's in there because it's just going to be thousands of pages of uh, really technical notes from uh, your physician, especially if you've had a hospitalization, lots of notes that have been jotted down by the nurses that you're just not going to be able to comprehend, although I'm with him in spirit, I'm with her on that one. On, uh, and uh, about the patient portals or the personal health records, um, the first patient portal personal health record I got was for my dog. I have one now for myself through my primary care physician, for my kids through the pediatric practice. Uh, but it is notable to me that the uh, that veterinary medicine was at least beat uh, you know, human medicine to provide me that convenience, uh, and 
And when I get my, and when I can look at the, the portal on my, uh, 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 my primary care physician's uh, website or go to my kids' um, uh, 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 the patient portal at the pediatric practice, that is still just a record of everything that happened at those groups. It's not a comprehensive, uh, the, the sort of comprehensive record that you'll get at KP. So, so I'm not, uh, you know, the, there are pluses and minuses to these approaches. One minus to KP, uh, to an integrated system, is that you uh, have less choice of doctors. The doctor that you like, who's a family friend you've known since you were a kid, which is actually my primary care physician, might not practice at KP and you might have to uh, switch doctors. Uh, the disadvantage to, uh, uh, to having that choice is that the uh, electronic records might not be interoperable. They, uh, you might still have to take paper instructions from uh, one specialist to another to your primary care physician. Uh, so uh, even, so you know, it, it, uh, that's one of the advantages of integration, but another, that's what, another advantage that, we, that most of us don't even have the choice of. Because even in some markets uh, like uh, the Washington, D.C. area, Kaiser Permanente is not fully integrated. Uh, I believe you lease space, you lease hospital space from, from other hospitals here because you don't have your own facilities. And so it is not fully integrated here the way it is in other parts of the country, mostly uh, Northern California, again, because of all those barriers that I had mentioned. Um, uh, how about uh, on the aisle down here, please? And we've got time for a couple more. Hi, I'm Grace Castro. Um, I work uh, at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, but I'm here today in my own personal capacity. Uh, one of the questions that I had for the panelists, um, you know, as you're familiar, uh, the ONC and HHS have recently proposed uh, rules to prohibit information blocking as directed by Congress pursuant to the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, I'm curious to know uh, with, you know, the congressional intent of the information blocking provision to be, you know, to allow patients to use standardized application programming interfaces, apps, uh, right, to be able to uh, access, exchange, and use their own EHI. Um, you know, to me in a personal capacity, this seems like an appropriate use of government uh, to be able to basically, you know, require private industry to do what it has not done, um, which really what they have done a lot is hide behind rules like HIPAA. Um, and I appreciate your uh, commentary there on how HIPAA is really not a particularly strong privacy law that people uh, often mistakenly believe that it is. Um, but the industry really has seemed, at least in my opinion, to coalesce around protecting their own access to patient health information. Um, and so, it, you know, for, for this proposed rule, this seems to me to be a step in the right direction to allow patients to make their own decisions, um, to carry their own information with them, to be able to go to a different provider, et cetera. Uh, what, what are your opinions on this, you know, proposed rulemaking? What are your opinions on um, government stepping in here to help try to uh, make it easier for patients to get access to this information? And if you would do something differently, what would that be? Well, um, I'll go with that to just say that I do have one little section in here called the dark side of interoperability. And of course, the dark side has to do with until we actually have patient consent. As soon as you make everybody's records interoperable, everybody who wants access to everybody's data for their own purposes can have access under HIPAA. 
And so whereas patients may want to share information between doctors, and they are allowed to do so right now, um, there are there are perhaps because of the, the way third-party payment works today, and everybody's just trying to keep their patients and keep their networks and keep all of this stuff together, that they don't, they don't care to share it, and they haven't had a good reason to share it. Um, but the problem with blocking information to, today really at its baseline is because we have no privacy, we have no protection, and in some ways the lack of interoperability is the only thing that keeps all of our data out of all the hands of everybody who wants it to pull together. And so it's sort of a, an unusual situation. We would be perfectly happy to have lots of people being able to share the information how they want to share it, right? But no, inf the information blocking rules are all to make it happen in place ways that people don't want to share it. They won't have any control over it. So I can understand where the government's coming from um, in trying to allow this data to be available for the care providers, from the care provider standpoint. So within Kaiser Permanente, we've got eight regions. If my patient, who I typically see in Northern California, is seen in Hawaii or here in um, Washington, D.C., I know what happened in Hawaii or Washington, D.C., and when the patient comes back to see me, I'm able to understand the treatment options, the, uh, the treatment that was provided, and able to formulate a plan that would be best for the patient. Um, if I didn't have that information, there'd be gaps in the chart. It'd be like Swiss cheese, and it'd potentially allow you know, uh, incorrect decisions to be made. Let's say, and it's not hard, hard to imagine this, let's say a patient of mine was discovered to have a severe drug allergy when they were seen here in DC. And they came back to see me, and you know, this patient's 75 years old, and they have difficulty remembering, they weren't with any family members, they come back to see me, and I ask, well, what happened when you're in DC? Not sure. I'm able to look at the chart and understand that you know that drug alley was discovered. I'm not going to prescribe that medication I can put in the chart and provide you know high level care, level care, more patient safety with respect to that. My answer to your question is to ask Dr. Lee a question, which is related to the answer you just gave. How often does information blocking happen within Kaiser? It, how, how often do you get Swiss cheese? How often are there holes in? Uh, the records uh, that you get from patients of yours who may have been seen by other Kaiser, uh, by Kaiser in other parts of the country. Yeah. Um. But that's the point. Right. Right, but I, my question is about within Kaiser, how much information blocking is there? Yeah, so I, I, I think when, when you mentioned that that's the point, I think that is the point that Kaiser Permanente is an integrated healthcare system where most of the patients who receive care receive the care within Kaiser Permanente. Um, of course, if they're traveling, like I mentioned earlier, they're out of the Kaiser area where there is a Kaiser Permanente, they'll receive the care where they need to get the care. Um, uh, when the patient comes back to see me, uh, they were in, I don't know, Ohio. There's no Kaiser Permanente there. Um, it's sometimes difficult to get those records um, to see what exactly happened because it's really actually quite critical for me to understand what happened during the hospitalization. Like I said, it, it, you know, 
we, want the, we want the patients to be as best informed as possible. And when I talk to a patient and I'm sitting with a patient, I explain to them, here are the risks, here are the benefits, here's the information that we have, and here's what we can do to um, uh, provide the best care possible. And if I don't have that information for that hospitalization that happened in Ohio, it's really difficult to do that. Now, I, I, I can't give you like a percentage. It's hard for me to know because I, I, I can't see you know, how often um, what, I don't, what I don't know. But in the times that that doesn't happen, I know that my care may not be as high as, as what I could potentially provide if I didn't have that information. So if they go to Ohio and they're outside of Kaiser, they receive care outside of Kaiser, there will be gaps. But within Kaiser, are there gaps? Do you run into uh, uh, episodes where uh, this, this patient was seen in DC, but I don't have a complete record. Someone's blocking the information that I, that, uh, about what, what the, the care that my patient got in DC. Within Kaiser Permanente? Within Kaiser. Because it's, it, I'm guessing it doesn't happen. Does not happen. Uh, and so my answer is that uh, if we've already got an example of, uh, of a way to share health information uh, uh, that, that doesn't involve information blocking, that is interoperable and seamless, uh, maybe the, uh, the right approach, which is not to go outside of that system and start whacking people over the head with million dollar fines for every episode of information blocking because we want to force everybody to share all the information uh, because we think we can centrally plan that process. Uh, maybe what you do, maybe our efforts should, would be better focused on trying to get out of the way some of the barriers to integrated prepaid systems do solve the information blocking problem. And if we had done that, maybe Kaiser wouldn't have been able to buy group health. Maybe group health would have flourished so much that it would have spread into other parts of the country. And then we would have had Kaiser and group health. And I don't know, maybe Walmart would want to start its own integrated prepaid group plan. They're getting into an integrated primary care practice in Dallas, Georgia right now. Maybe they can then work their way up the food chain. And we can have I mean, everybody who lives within 10 miles of a Walmart or something like some large percentage of the U.S. population. And so if we had more robust competition through uh, 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 more robust competition from these types of health plans that have solved that problem, then we wouldn't have to, as I say, go whacking everyone with a million dollar fine every time uh, there's a problem between those health plans or uh, between those health plans and a non-integrated provider. Uh, and maybe then those health plans could also compete on the dimension of quality that, that uh, tries to solve that particular problem too. Because you know, there's always going to be an Ohio. There's always going to be somewhere where someone goes or going to get care outside of that system. And uh, these plans have an incentive to try to solve that problem. Uh, I, I, I see more of the ham-handedness uh, that Twyla describes in her book in, in the approach that ONC uh, and Congress more broadly is taking right now, which is to penalize everyone who's doing something that we don't like. Uh, I don't think that's uh, a viable strategy. And I'm being told by our wonderful support staff here at Cato that it's time to draw this, uh, this uh, uh, book forum to a close. I want to thank Twyla so much for uh, allowing us to do a forum on her book and thank Dr. Lee uh, for coming to provide comments and all of you for watching here and online as well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>